listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Psalm 110, and so if you have your copy of God's Word, um, we're going to start with verse 1, and we're going to read through this psalm together. So it says in Psalm 110, starting in verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So, I'm going to ask to, to start off, have you ever had a time in your life where you experienced or were duped by like a counterfeit something? Um, I remember one time when I was going into second grade, we moved to, to North Carolina and uh, moving into a new neighborhood. And my dad and myself and my brother, my dad was kind of, would do this, would baseball col- uh, card collecting was a big hobby of ours. And so my dad was you know, kind of vicariously living through us by buying all the cool baseball cards that he wanted. But, you know, he was giving them to us. So, you know, it was uh, for the kids. Um, but we both had these, these, me and my brother both had these big baseball collections and we would have the little books because before, you know, before the internet, we had these magazines were published every week to tell you how much everything was worth and you could look up all the cards and everything. Well, we had also just recently seen the movie uh, Sandlot. And so if you remember that movie, there's this nice uh, whole thing about Babe Ruth in there. You see how valuable this this little thing is. Well, we move in the neighborhood. We're trying to meet some of the kids. And uh, the kid kid down the road, um, we meet named Mike, uh, if you ever run into him. Tell him I don't like him. No, I'm just joking. Um, This kid down down the road named Mike, uh, he uh, convinced me. He was older. He was like in middle school, and I was like a second grader. Convinced me that he had a he had this signed Babe Ruth card, and he would trade me for my whole baseball card collection, and I did. <laughs> so I gave him all of these cards for this, and I was so excited to go back and show my dad that I had gotten a signed Babe Ruth card. Well, actually, what it was was just a cheap replica of a sign. There was like seven signed Babe Ruth cards in existence. It was like a little cheap replica that they reprinted and put out in these packages. So now looking back at it, I was thinking about it this week and I'm like, actually, I feel bad kind of after my dad because he's just moving into the neighborhood and he has to go knock on the neighbor's door and tell him, hey, your kid ripped off my kid. You know, can I have his baseball cards back? And so it was a whole ordeal, but uh, you put your trust in something, you put your hope in something, you value something and you find out comes back a fake. Sometimes it's people that we do this with. Like I was thinking about, uh, you know, I, I, I try to say that I'm a pretty good judge of people. I'm not like, I don't get 
sucked into scams or things. I've never texted uh, money to any like Nigerian princes or anything like that. Like, like I, I don't, I don't get duped very easily, but I can tell you one person that like, it just hurt really bad was Lance Armstrong. Okay. He suckered me good. I was like the biggest Lance Armstrong fan wearing the live strong stuff, getting up Never cared about bike racing any other time in my life, but getting up early in the middle of the night to watch the Tour de France live, uh, read, read all of his books, uh, and I was the first one always when people were like, you know he's on steroids, you know? Uh, I'd be like, absolutely not. He's the most tested athlete in the world. Like, he, he's getting tested constantly. And it's like, oh no, he's just literally having all of his blood taken out of his body and different blood put in so that he doesn't get tested positive. And so... So I, I was pretty, I was pretty, it was a big blow when I found out that he was just a massive liar and kind of a horrible person. Um, so you, you put your kind of, even, uh, we see this all the time with whether it's sports people that we like or whether it's pastors that we kind of put some value or hope in or whether it's politicians. Um, people, a lot of times are gonna let us down. People are gonna not be who they seem to be. And so when we look at this psalm, Psalm 110, what we're really seeing is almost kind of the reverse of that. We're seeing that there's all these cheap imitations that are pointing to a true and better reality in Jesus Christ. So throughout the Old Testament, we have these, these types, these images, these, these poor replicas that are pointing to the reality of Jesus, this great priestly king. The main idea for us in this passage is that Jesus is the true and better king and priest sent by God to crush his enemies and deliver his people. Jesus is the true and better king and priest that's sent by God to crush his enemies and deliver his people. So going all the way back to Adam, whether it's Adam, whether it is uh, Noah, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Moses, all the way through to King David, who is the author of this psalm, we see people who, who God is, is filling with power, with supernatural gifting, with, with strengths, so that they can both deliver God's people and so that they can also try to help uh, return their hearts back to the Lord. There's trying to serve in this sort of priestly and kingly function, and nobody's doing it really that well. Uh, nobody's able to completely do it. Whether it's Adam, instead of uh, protecting his people and delivering them to, to this right relationship with God, doing the exact opposite of that. Whether, it is, uh, whether it's Noah, who just as soon as he's delivered, is immediately falling into to sin again. Whether it's Abraham, who who is trying to build this people from all peoples that can glorify and worship God, is constantly fighting with people around him, constantly uh, doubting God and trying to like lie and, and figure things out for himself. Whether it's through Moses, who again, it's a lack of trust, a lack of faith in God, it's, it's leading people the wrong way. Whether it's David, who uh, falls into sin, yes, but who cannot, God even specifically tells him, you can't build my temple because you have blood on your hands. These people are not able to both fight against God's enemies to deliver them and also to restore their hearts and turn them back to him. 
It's not something that a human being can do because of sin, because people are not perfect. You just think about yourself a little bit and think, if I have to perfectly for one day be righteous and just in every decision that I make, put other people before myself, point other people to Jesus in every action, you probably get exhausted just thinking about the kind of pressure that that would mean for just one day, much less trying to be that Savior, Messiah for people. And yet we see clearly in this passage, written in the Old Testament long before Jesus is even born, we see that there's this prophecy that says there's going to be this person, this Lord who's, who's given the power of God to extend his reign to the ends of the earth, to conquer the enemies of God, to rally people to himself. We see this, this can't be David himself that he's talking about. So, so basically what happens is, is this becomes uh, like a, an interpretive problem, even for people in, uh, even for, for Jewish interpreters in their time, uh, which is one of the reasons why this becomes the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Now, this is a psalm that for many of us, we don't seem that incredibly familiar with. Like if I'd read Psalm 23, most of you'd be quoting along with it. Psalm 1, you could just quote right along with it. We turn to those psalms for encouragement to, 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 uh, be, to feel closer to God or grow in our knowledge of him. But this is one of those psalms that, again, we see a, a little bit of a disconnect that I think is kind of important for us to explore because we see a, a psalm that is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament, over, at least over 30 times directly in the New Testament, uh, over 12 different books, not even just in one place. You can literally almost say that the entire book of Hebrews is like a commentary on Psalm 110. That wouldn't be too much of a stretch of the imagination. And, and yet it's one that, again, we're not incredibly familiar with. So, so why and what is it that we are supposed to know and learn from this particular passage? So the reason it was kind of a problem, and we're just going to walk through a couple of steps around the context of this. So it's what is actually said. So you may notice at the very beginning, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, Michael actually alluded to the fact last week that sometimes there's different words for Lord that don't translate into our context. So this first one we have is that Yahweh, Lord, the all caps, Lord. And then the next one is like a sovereign, okay? So we, we have a couple of different things, all right? Sit at my right hand and I make your enemies your footstool. So, but then he goes on to describe something. First of all, we have an, an issue because it's David who's writing the psalm. So the Lord says to my Lord. So David's saying, God says to my king, basically. Well, why would David be saying it this way? That's the first little interpretive issue. The second thing that we run into is, can this even be about an earthly kind of king? We start to see some some supernatural elements that come into play here. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He's sending this forth from them. He's purifying people. He's purifying their garments. Um, he's also then, like we said before, what's very difficult, becoming a priest. Not just a king, but we see in verse 4, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek, if we go back to, to Genesis... Um, and we'll talk about him a little bit more, but this is what the writer of Hebrews gets into a lot throughout the, throughout the entire text, is really kind of talking about what this means, that Jesus 
is a priest. He's not just a, a king. He's not just Messiah. He's also a priest. The priest is somebody who's going to intercede on behalf of his people. So Melchizedek was a, was a king of Jerusalem, actually. He was a king of Jerusalem that, that Abraham comes, to, comes up against. And he's really mysterious for a couple of reasons. Well, we have his name, and his name means like righteous one of God. Uh, and, but he's not, a, he's not a Jew. He's not Jewish. He's not an Israelite. He's not Hebrew. Um, he is some other, you know, we don't know about his origins and we don't know where he ends. He just kind of enters the story for this moment, this righteous king of Jerusalem who comes out uh, and meets with, uh, meets with Abraham and is both a priest and a king. And so, so we see this psalmist saying he's a priest like Melchizedek, a king and a priest, a righteous one of God like him. So, so this is, this is, what does he mean by this? It's problematic if you were uh, a Hebrew because you can't be a priest and a king. It doesn't work like that. So we have a couple of issues here. It's like, who is David talking about? And who is going to be both a priest and a king and fulfill those, both of those functions? So there was a lot of debate around this issue. And in fact, Jesus himself is going to get pulled into a conversation over in Matthew. So, so not only do we need to see what does this original psalmist say, but we can look at what do the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, what do they say about this, this passage? So if you, you look over, and we're going to flip to a couple different passages of Scripture. You can feel free to follow along or write down the references or um, either one you want. But uh, So he, he flips over to Matthew. If, if you flip over to Matthew chapter 22, they have a discussion. Jesus doesn't flip over to Matthew 22. Uh, the Pharisees are having this discussion. So it says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. This is not a question that they were unfamiliar with. This is a common question that they had discussed and debated in the past. The Pharisees believe that there's going to be a Messiah. And they really point to Psalm 110 as saying that a Messiah is going to be coming. There's going to be a deliverer. There's a couple other places as well, like in Isaiah, other places. But Psalm 110 is one of those sort of messianic prophecies. So how do we deal with this problem? Well, David is talking about the Son of God who's going to be this Messiah. But Jesus challenged him. He says to them, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one's able to answer him. Well, we know what Jesus is alluding to. What does Jesus say about this passage? Jesus, in a couple of different places, through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is going to refer to this passage in connection with himself. Jesus is this promised Messiah to come. So part of the reason why the Pharisees get so angry, get so mad, is because Jesus is claiming this Messiahship for himself. The Pharisees are waiting for this Messiah to come. And they imagine him coming as a mighty and powerful king because that's the way he's described in this passage. He's a king who's going to crush his enemies. He's going to crush the enemies of the people of God. But they have a small view of God. Their view of God is that he's going to defeat their personal enemies, that he would crush Rome, that he would crush the people who were oppressing them, Herod, that they would be free and they would be kind of glorified as this powerful kingdom again. But that's not his attention at all. Jesus has a much bigger plan. He's going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where it talks about 
your son is going to crush the head of the snake. This first little glimpse of the gospel, Satan is going to be crushed by Jesus. His head is going to be crushed by the work of Jesus on the cross. That is the plan that he has, much more so than some people, some earthly kings. He's going to destroy the true enemies of God, sin, death, Satan, the, the enemies that, that plague us and that, uh, that, that truly enslave and bind us. And so he has much bigger plan in mind. And so he is going to say that he's that long-awaited Messiah. And what do the apostles say? The apostles speak about this many, many times. And there's this one great uh, passage in Acts where just early on, after Jesus has died and, and has, has ascended, Peter is going to preach this incredible sermon at Pentecost. And he's going to point directly to um, this time where he says uh, in Acts 2, starting in verse 34. Actually, we're going to start in verse 32. This is in the middle of this sermon that Peter's preaching uh, at Pentecost. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so then we have this New Testament understanding, this Christian understanding of this passage where we see this is a fulfillment of the gospel, this proclamation of the gospel. The pieces come together. David, speaking of Jesus, says, He's going to ascend as he just has. If they just witnessed, he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. Given, and this right hand position is the, the position invested with authority, invested with power. Like we saw in Psalm 110, the scepter going out of Zion. That's a symbol of the power of the king. Jesus is invested with this full power of God. And this this. Spirit is going out from him to all the people. It's going out to redeem people, not just to rule and crush enemies, but in this priestly role to redeem people and to wash people and to cleanse people. And so this full power is invested in him. We see again several references throughout Hebrews. But what does, how do we as Christians then apply Psalm 110 to our lives. So we can start to develop this Christian understanding of the passage. So how do we apply it to ourselves? How do we take this and live out some truth from this in our lives every day? So first of all, Jesus is our great king enthroned by God. Like we said in the beginning, we're wanting to put our hope in something. The reason that there are like messiahs in all these different cultures throughout history is because there's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with our lives. We, all of us, experience suffering, experience death, experience pain. We all know that there's something off in the way that the world is, that this can't be how it was supposed to be. So there's this deep longing for a Messiah, this deep longing for someone to set things right. 
And so people will put their hope and put their trust in, in any number of things. People will put their, their trust in the wisdom of philosophers. And there are some very wise people out there going all the way back to the ancient Greeks, coming all the way forward. There's some, some wisdom that's to be had. But no one's wisdom is perfect. There's not one philosopher that can actually answer all of those deep questions that plague the hearts of human beings, that get at the heart of the human condition. It, it, there's, there's no politician that can set the world right. If we would just get this person elected, if this party could just fully come into power, if this would happen or if that would happen, then the world could be set right and we would experience perfection. We would experience goodness and justice. And yet you look throughout the history of the world and it doesn't matter which political party is in control because they all are made up of people. People who have sinned. People who for their best intentions do the wrong thing. And so, so we're never able to find that, that hope fulfilled in this life. We're never able to find it. And yet we look to Jesus and we see where that hope is fulfilled. We see in his plan and in his redemption how we can find peace in the midst of the difficulties of this life and how he's ultimately gonna set things right once and for all. The world's a messed up place, full of evil, full of sin. We look around and say, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? We long for this Messiah, someone to save us. And there are numerous counterfeits all around us, but Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our long-awaited-for deliverer. Jesus is the true and better Adam, the true and better David, the true and better uh, Moses. He's the true and better priest and king. He's at the right hand of God, we see clearly in verse 1, and he's filled with power and authority, and he's able to accomplish things in our lives and in this world. If you look at Philippians uh, chapter 2, 9 through 11. It says this, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the God we serve. This is our hope in life. This is Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. And he's also empowered by God. We see that Jesus is given power. We, we looked at that scepter that's the symbol of power and authority and extends from Zion to over all God's people are cleansed and are made new. In verse 3 we see of 110, we see the proper response to Jesus. I lost my spot in 110. We see the proper response to Jesus in verse 3. It says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. We offer ourselves freely to so many things. So often we're offering ourselves to, to things that have no power, have no healing, have no mercy and grace for us, things that use us wrongly. We offer ourselves to so much, and yet that's because we're longing to offer ourselves to somebody that we can trust, 
somebody that will save us, somebody that will redeem us and fill us with hope and fill us with purpose. And that's what we have in King Jesus. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. I don't know if you ever met uh, a politician, met a celebrity, met somebody that you were like kind of almost inspired by or in awe of. I remember um, as a kid, I went to First Baptist Elegy and um, Jimmy Carter had a, a house up there in Elegy. And so when he'd be on vacation, sometimes he would come, up, come over to our church and, you know, all the adults would kind of be in awe. But, you know, who's not in awe is like little kids, okay? So I could care less who this is. This is just another guy with gray hair. Um, and I remember one time we had like a, like kind of a kid's table, several of us. We were all like kindergarten, first grade kind of an age. And it was Wednesday night, like prayer meeting. And we're sitting there and, uh, and this old guy comes up and sits down in a chair next to one of my friends. And uh, she was like a year old. She's probably in like first grade. And she just looks over at him and says, um, excuse me, that is my daddy's chair. All right? You need to move. And he moves. And then, of course, they tell him, you know, that was the president that you just kicked out of the chair there. He was trying to sit there and be nice to the little children. Um, but to her, Jimmy Carter's just another gray-haired guy. Her dad was the one who was the authority. He was a celebrity in her life. He was the one she wanted to spend time with. He was the one who had the power for her. What mattered to her was uh, a person of authority who could actually be there and help her. It wasn't, it wasn't some celebrity. It wasn't some Jimmy Carter. Her dad is who she wanted to sit with. So Jesus is not just a king. He's also our great high priest. The priest king is alluded to several times in the Old Testament, starting with Melchizedek that we looked at in, in Genesis it's difficult, though, for somebody to be that pure, that white, that, that unstained garments. You remember in, in uh, the Old Testament, the priest had to be pure. The priest, and, and since they were sinful people, they had to be representatively pure. So they had to go through all these ceremonial washings and cleansings to symbolize the fact that they had to be pure in order to intercede with God on behalf of the people. This is very important to God because it's showing people that God can have nothing to do with sin. God can have, God is perfection. He can have, he cannot be tainted by sinfulness. And so in order to be this intercessor, they had to go through these purifications. They had to be totally pure. And it was very difficult for a king who's imbued with all this power, strength, and authority to be pure as a priest. That's why their roles were separated because a human being cannot kind of be a prophet, a priest, a king, all of these things in one. They serve different functions and different roles. And a lot of times a king in the Old Testament we see is no more than just a tool that God uses, okay? That's what a king is most of the time. We're like, how did God use these people? It's like, well, God just needed a strong arm to, to, to take out some enemies. And he would use these kings in that role and in that function. And he, so he didn't want a, a king to be a priest or a prophet because that's not what he needed from them. He needed them to destroy some enemies. So when you're looking at a king, that, that's separated from the priestly role. So for Jesus to fulfill both this function of king, it means that in his power, in his authority, in his even at times judgment and violence towards sin and towards evil, he has to be perfect in justice. That's a difficult feat 
to accomplish. So when he's wielding this scepter, he does it with perfect justice. And in, in doing that, it allows him to be unstained in order to be a perfect priest who intercedes on our behalf as well. And so he's able to serve in this function. The one who rules and the one who intercedes are able to be the same. And, and as I told you, the, the entire book of Hebrews in a lot of ways is, is a reference to this. Uh, and if you look over at uh, Hebrews 5, it's just one example. Hebrews 5, um, looking in verse 8, it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So what is this saying here? This is saying that we have a king with all the power and all the authority who also suffered. And this, again, is a rare, rare thing. There's a lot of talk today, and this is, this is a, an important thing that I've been thinking about a lot this week. There's a lot of talk today in our culture about power about the role that power plays in society, about institutional and structural power, power as it relates to men and women, power as it relates to uh, race relations, power of governments. And a lot of times power is used to exploit, power is used to oppress, power is used to abuse. And we're not talking about politics here, we're talking about reality. A lot of times power is used in these ways. And so because of that, we see a strong response against power in our culture, that as if power is the problem. Power is the problem. So having power makes you an oppressor. Having power makes you an exploiter. Having power makes you an abuser. But the Christian teaching tells us something very different. The Christian teaching says the, the problem is not the power. The problem is sin. The problem is sinful people wielding power. And when sinful people have power, there's going to be abuse. There's going to be exploitation. There's going to be oppression. Those things flow out of human beings who have power over other people. So what we have to be careful of as Christians is not to say that all power is evil. Power is a tool. But what we need to do is, one, be wary of people with power. Because we know as Christians, people are sinful. And so people are going to do those things if they have the ability to do them. So we can, with the people in our culture today, say, yes, there is systematic injustice that we face because sinful people are in charge. Sinful people run governments. Sinful people run institutions. There is, sinful people are in marriages together. And so where there is power that can be exploited, they're going to do those things. So we can, as Christians, come alongside them and say, yes, we can see those problems and we can work together to address those issues. But the answer is not just to eliminate power or to put other people in power. The answer is that the power is in King Jesus. We have to look to him as the source of our power and the source of our strength. And in his hands, power is good. Because he is just and he is wise and he is loving and merciful and he is both king and priest and he has 
suffered himself at the hands of unjust people to liberate others. And so he's uniquely positioned to wield this position of power where he can both cleanse people and he can both rule justly in a way that no one else in history is able to do because he's a God who died, a God who suffered, a God who experienced it. He can relate to people who were oppressed. He can teach people who have power how to wield it wisely. And he can support and liberate those who are being abused or who are being exploited. Both of these things are tied up in our King Jesus. And as Christians, we're we're called to be not so much political leaning one way or the other, but disciples of him formed in his image, this cruciform image of Jesus, who's willing to see the problems and the sin and recognize those things in the world, who's willing to suffer for others out of love, and who's being formed in the image of Christ so that whether oppressed or oppressor, whether power or no power, they're able to, to, to be as Jesus would be in those situations. So practically, which is the last couple of minutes we have here, just a few applications from all of this. So the first thing I want to challenge you to do is, is especially for passages like this, where it seems like New Testament writers just love a passage so much, and yet we don't really use it that much today. We, we, that's a, it's, why? Why are those things there? And I think the thing that we see very clearly from this passage is the power and lordship of Jesus. We're longing for that Savior. We're longing for who he is. And we see it clearly and boldly proclaimed here. We also see the enemies defeated and crushed. We can look with hope, not that we have to get, not that we have to judge or punish our enemies because we know that God is gonna do that. I don't trust myself to do it right, honestly. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of us don't. I know just in discipline in my own children, I get it wrong probably about half the time. My kids may say more, but I'm not perfect in that. So now put people's lives and put people's future, I, I don't want that responsibility. God is the one who has that responsibility. We look to him to exact vengeance and to bring justice. And we're called to live under that rule that he has. And so we look to him as the source of strength. We look to him as our God. We don't look in hope to politicians or political parties, even nations and philosophies. And we don't have to look to those things as a source of strength and hope. We look to Jesus as our source of strength and hope. And so we have to be aware because we have kind of fickle hearts. So we have to, to be aware as we listen to radio or podcasts, as we read news feeds and news stories. We have to be aware that our heart is, is e- it's easy to wander. It's easy to drift. It's easy to try to look to other things as our source of strength or that bring us anxiety uh, and make us worry, things that are going to distract us from a faith and trust in Jesus. It's easy for us to think, I don't know that Jesus is really paying attention right now. What's going on? Look at the world around me. Okay, something's wrong. And so to have that utmost confidence in him and that he's going to set things right is a call for us as Christians. Verse 6, we, is the word chief there is also translated as head. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, and he will shatter the head, the head of the, the, the wide earth. 
So in Hebrew, a lot of times it's translated as the head. Again, pointing back to that gospel message of the head of evil being crushed by the Savior. He is our hope. He is our Savior. He is good and self-sacrificing and powerful and delivering and freeing and cleansing power. This power, again, is, is a tool. It's like a knife. Depending on who is wielding that tool, it can kill, it can harm, it can maim, or if it's in the hands of a good surgeon, it can heal. Jesus is wielding power in the best possible way to save people, to bring justice and to bring salvation, to bring grace and mercy. So how do we respond? Many of us are giving those places of honor in our lives to fakes. We need to tell those fake kings to get out of that seat next to us because that belongs to our dad. That belongs to King Jesus. He has the place of honor and the place of authority and the place of strength in our lives. And the last thing I want to look at is, is over in, back in Acts, where we, we looked just a minute ago in Acts chapter 2. We're looking at how to respond. We see that really clearly from the people who hear the message that Peter proclaimed. Verse 37 this is right after the passage we just read. It's the next verse, right after the one we, we read about Jesus. He says, Now then, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the, gift, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children and all who were far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. We can see, I can see three things clearly that we're called to do in response to this message of who Jesus is and what this kingly priest means for us. One, repent. Repent of our sins. We're standing before a holy and just God. And so the only proper response in standing before him is to repent, to fall on our knees, and ask for forgiveness for our sins. And thankfully, he's not just that just king. He's also the priest who can forgive us and make us clean. And so just like we did at the beginning of this service, we confess our sins to the Lord. We confess our sins to one another we're honest of the fact that we're human beings who are not perfect and we have sin in our lives that we cannot fix and we cannot heal, that only he can. So we repent of our sins. Second thing, we receive his word. Receive his word with gladness. We hear it proclaimed on Sunday mornings. We're called to, to listen to that word throughout the week, to speak that word to one another. It's the word of God that the spirit uses to change us into the image of his son. So we have to be constantly hearing and receiving the word of God. The word of God is active and powerful. It's not just a book of history. It's, it's a word that the spirit uses to change us, to fill us with hope when the world seems hopeless, to help us in times of suffering, to give us words to say to our brothers and sisters who need it. Receive the word and then finally obey the word. See, both times they were baptized immediately dunked in water, out of obedience to God, this first act of obeying this word. We're called to obey the word that we hear. So whatever 
Whatever the word says to us, whatever it speaks to us, now we're called to then go and obey it. Repent of our sins, receive his word, obey that word. Seems really simple. Yes, simple in theory, difficult in practice. We pray for the spirit of God to help us in this. Receive, repent, receive the word and obey the word. So one of the cool things back in Genesis 14, 18, as we wrap it up today, and you don't have to go and look at this, but you can later. It's really, really neat. And Melchizedek actually says he brings out, when he comes to meet Abraham, he brings out bread and wine for them to eat together. It's this foretaste of the gospel message, this foretaste of communion. And each and every week here at South Point, we remember this bread and wine, this symbol of the broken body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus poured out. This mighty king who is willing to suffer on the cross so that he can be the priest for us to make us right with God, to purify us. So each week we celebrate this together because it is the power of God in that broken body and that spilled blood that are gonna save us. And all around this room, there are some stations set up. And so in just a minute, Whenever I finish praying or say amen, it'll be time for you to go and, uh, and, and do this in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus has made. So Father God, thank you so much for this time we've had together this morning. Thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that as we hear about your goodness and your glory and your righteousness, the power that you have and that you've been invested with at the right hand of God, Lord, I pray that we would be humbled and cut to the heart And as we hear of the sacrifice that you made on the cross for us, forgive us from our sins and make a way for us to be right with God. That we would say, what must I do? We would repent of our sins. We would receive your word with gladness and obey that word each and every day, Lord. And I pray that as we take some time to remember the sacrifice you made, that you would strike us with your spirit and your heart. Point out those sinful things, those ways that that we idolize others or things in this world. And help us to make much of Jesus. Pray all these things in his name. Amen.